All right, a couple of announcements before we get started. First of all, a reminder that the church picnic slash rainout, whatever it's going to be this year, see, as soon as we start thinking that's what's going to happen, it'll be fine and we won't really be prepared. So be careful. That will be October 19th at Orlando Salas' place out in Patterson. You go out to Brookshire, and it's just outside of there. We'll have maps available. And also, uh, the men's prayer breakfast for this month is on September the 21st. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God, I will praise his word. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very thankful we have you to come to, that you are a, an incredible God. You are the one and only God. You are unique in every aspect of your being, and you have created us in your image and likeness to represent you, to have intimate fellowship with you, and to be uh, creatures who are devoted to you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us even more to come to understand you, to delight in you, to delight in your word, to make that a priority in our lives in the midst of so many things that scream and yell at us all day long for our attention. Nevertheless, we need to keep a full orientation uh, toward you. Father, tonight as we study your word and we come to understand more what it means to trust in you and to rely upon you on a day-by-day basis, We pray that you would open the scriptures to us and help us understand the significance of this psalm for us, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me tonight to Psalm chapter 60, Psalm chapter 60. The reason we are in this psalm is clear from the the superscript of the psalm, which puts it at about the time of the events that we've been studying in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 2 Samuel chapter 10. That has some uh, issues related to that. But the focal point really of this psalm is on claiming God's promises. So it's a, uh, it's a great psalm for that because it is a uh, lament psalm. We've studied lament psalms before. That's the scholarly uh, identification or classification of these psalms, where the writer of the psalm is either personally going through a time of incredible adversity or distress or some crisis, or the nation is going through some uh, distress or crisis. In this case, it's the nation. And it appears that the nation has suffered some significant military defeat, and it's not a military defeat that we are told about 
in 2 Samuel 8 or 2 Samuel chapter 10. So we're sort of left on our own in terms of digging down into that uh, specific context. It is about claiming God's promise because as we look at Psalm 60, uh, he begins by expressing the fact that they are under divine discipline apparently. He doesn't know for sure. What he knows is that God has abandoned them and as a result, they there were seriously defeated. And then in the middle of the psalm, God reminds them of his past promise to them in promising and giving them the land and in promising to protect them and to help them. And this leads to the final prayer and statement of faith in verses 10 through 12. And so it gives us a good understanding of our breakdown of how we claim a promise. And what that means when we say to claim a promise is that we are taking a promise or principle in God's word and we are holding God to that and we're expressing that to him. The reason I state it that way is every uh, every time I teach on faith rest drill and claiming a promise in some other language, the interpreter looks at me like I've just started speaking in something other than English. That is an idiom that goes back to uh, goes back to uh, the uh, it could go back to the old west here where you'd stake a claim on if you were mining and you had a piece of uh, land where you discovered gold or oil or some other mineral, you'd stake a claim and you were making a a, a legal uh, legal claim of ownership to something. And so that's the idea is that we're owning that promise that God has given to us. And so we say that there are three steps in claiming a promise. The first step is to grab hold of it. It is a promise in terms of a specific verse, or maybe it's just a portion of a verse. In some cases, it is a, a principle. But the example that we have in most cases in the Scripture is when God has spoken, and so a crisis has occurred, and someone is quoting or citing that promise uh, as a way of defending themselves against temptation or against some kind of attack or to reorient their thinking toward God and God's person and God's plan. And the second step, as we think through the verse, we think through the uh, promise, then we see that they're all built on certain rationales. One rationale has to do with understanding the essence of God, which is why we're going to start by looking at uh, what the Bible teaches about God's providence, just understanding the nature, the essence of who God is because it's his character that is behind the promise. A promise is no good if the person who gives the promise has no integrity. But if the person has integrity and is righteous, then that promise has value. So one one issue is the just understanding the essence of God. There are other, other rationales that we see and have studied as we go through the Scripture. 
Then we look at the conclusions. Yes, God is faithful. Yes, God is righteous. Yes, God is sovereign. We come to those conclusions and we, we take a stand on those conclusions. And so the result is it changes the way we think about the crisis. doesn't necessarily change the crisis. It doesn't change the test. It doesn't change the temptation. It doesn't change the adversity, but it changes the way we think about that adversity. It changes the way in which we approach those circumstances in life. And so that enables us then to relax. That's the rest part. The, there's, the faith rest has two senses to it. It's not just something passive. It is something that's active. The active part is that we're grabbing hold of the promise, we're praying to God, and sometimes the promise entails doing something. Uh, it may entail waiting on the Lord. It may entail uh, moving forward. For example, God gave a promise to Israel that they would conquer the Canaanites. Well, in that case, they had to trust God to give them the victory, but then they had to pick up their armor and their swords, and they had to cross the River Jordan, and they had to go into battle. Uh, when God gave them directions that he would give them victory over over Jericho, he gave them some pretty bizarre instructions. And he said, every day you're going to keep your mouth shut and be as quiet as you can, and you're going to walk one time around the city, and then on the seventh day you're going to walk around it seven times, and then when you finish the seventh time you're all going to shout and blow the trumpets, and the walls will fall down. You don't read about that tactic anywhere in any military manual in the world. But it is demonstrating the principle that we see all through the Scripture, and that is that the battle is the Lord's. That, that doesn't mean that we don't engage in things that we can do, that, that as far as the Israelites were concerned, they needed to learn the skills of combat. They needed to learn keep their weapons, uh, sh- their swords sharpened. They needed to uh, keep their armor intact. But that wasn't the ultimate place of their confidence it was in God and that's what we see as a theme in this particular psalm is that the problem in losing the battle uh, according to David is that they have somehow and doesn't state what those circumstances are somehow they have uh, done something they have disobeyed God they're either a under divine discipline doesn't really state it as such They're either A, under divine discipline, so God has abandoned them, which is like what happened in Joshua chapter 4, or I think in Joshua 7, excuse me, Joshua chapter 7, with the sin of Achan where he buries his uh, trophies and booty underneath his tent in disobedience to the Lord's command, or maybe God is just testing them in terms of their obedience by uh, not intervening, and so they've lost a battle, and so it is an opportunity for them to trust God even more. It's not really clear in the text what those circumstances are. So before we get into that, I want to talk about the, what the Bible teaches about the providence of God. We touched on this last week when we were in Second Samuel chapter 10. The only time that God's name is mentioned there, and there's two major battles that take place in 2 Samuel 10. The one involved the Ammonites, the war against Ammon in the first uh, 12, 14 verses. And then after that, there's another 
major battle, a very significant battle where there were high casualties that took place in the north against uh, Zoba and the Syrians. Okay, so there's this, that, that's a major battle. The only time God's name is mentioned is when Joab recognized that they, they, they had been caught in a trap, and he tells his brother Abishai that, you know, it's up to God, and that God's going to take care of them. And that's really just an allusion to the providence of God. So we're going to go through about five, five summary points on the uh, providence of God, and then we'll look at how the faith rest drill is illustrated in Psalm 60. First of all, God's providence is a function of his sovereignty. His sovereignty means that God rules over his creation. We had a verse uh, Sunday morning, I think it was in Psalm 42, talking about uh, God, the King of glory. This is not talking about Jesus as the messianic king. It is talking about God the Father as the ruler of his creation. It's a verse that relates to his sovereignty. He rules over his creation. He rules actively in terms of directly causing certain things, and he rules permissively where he allows human volition to take place that will bring about uh, certain results. But God oversees, superintends everything that takes place in human history. So God's providence is a function of his sovereignty, which emphasizes his rule or governance over the course of history. The second thing we learn about the word providence is it emphasizes God's control of the course of history including both the good and the evil. He allows evil to develop in this life since the fall because he is accomplishing certain purposes. Now, they may be outside of our understanding. There's a lot of people who want to question, how can a good God allow evil? Well, if God didn't allow evil, evil is the result of people who make decisions in rebellion against God, and they can only do that on the basis of individual volition or free will, individual responsibility. And that is uh, is not genuine if they don't have the opportunity to disobey God and to disobey God in the most egregious ways. Now, God many times overrules human volition. He overrules our volition to do good, and he overrules our volition to do evil. There are times in your life and in mine when we've really wanted to do certain things or help certain people or accomplish certain things, and God just has not made it possible for us to do that. On the other hand, there are times perhaps when we wanted to do things that we knew we shouldn't do, and God, for out of his grace, overruled us, and we just didn't, weren't allowed to fulfill those lusts of our sin nature, whatever they, they might be. We haven't been able to follow through with uh, perhaps anger or bitterness or desire for revenge or whatever because God, God overruled. That's all part of the providence of God. And he is ultimately going to bring all things together for good. He is using all of these things to teach, to instruct, to demonstrate his character, his integrity, his love, and his grace. And when it's all over with, we will come to truly understand the promise of Romans 8.28 that we know that all things work together for good. God is working all things together for good. 
And when it, it, it doesn't say all things are good, he says God works them together for the end. The end result is that which is good and that which brings glory to himself. Third point is that providence means that our lives and the events in our lives are not determined by chance, fate, or luck. Chance, fate, and luck are impersonal. So for the believer, we don't believe in chance, we don't believe in fate, we don't believe in luck, but we believe in a personal God who is working all things according to his plan. And that we as believers in Christ have a direct personal relationship with him that we can enjoy and that enriches our lives and gives us a basis for hope and for joy and for peace and stability no matter what is going on around our lives. The biggest problem we have, I think, as Americans, is those who are the products of, of the Western culture, the Western worldview, is that that we think that <clears throat> that when we hit all these crises, we can do something about it, and that somehow our happiness <clears throat> our happiness is dependent upon circumstances going the way we want them to, people responding to us the way we want them to. to. Uh, we think we can control things, and we see a civilization, at least in America, where there are uh, subgroups within our culture that r- seem to talk and act as if they can even control the weather and that somehow even things like like uh, Hurricane Dorian or Harvey or any of these other horrible hurricanes are somehow the result of what humans have done. They are, but not in any way like you think. They're the result of Adam's original sin. And as a result of Adam's original sin, we live in a corrupt world where all of these physical tragedies, these these horrible physical things take place simply because it's a fallen world. And God is in control, but God allows these systems to work their way out. And uh, even even so, he, he intervenes. I think that God has intervened to some degree on this, this storm and the answer to a lot of prayers in keeping it from going straight into Florida and going straight up the peninsula north and doing an incredible amount of damage and taking a tremendous number of lives. And the way it so far seems to have stayed off the coast has has saved a lot of lives and saved a lot of property and a lot of money. And I think God intervenes in cases like that. And uh, some people may say, well, why didn't God just make it all go away? Well, I don't know. There's a lot of factors we don't know, but we trust God to do the right thing. As, as, uh, uh, as Abraham said, How, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He knows a lot more about what is going on than any of us. So we trust him and that he is a personal God who is involved in all of the details of the running of the planet. So fourth, providence, therefore, is related to the character of God. And we have to understand three factors. First of all, his sovereignty. He's determined that mankind is allotted a certain domain of freedom, a certain arena of freedom in human history. We can make a lot of choices and carry out those choices. There are other times when when we make choices, but then God overrides those choices, and we're not able to carry it out. 
And I think in the areas of good things, how many times have we heard Christians say, well, if I won the lottery, I would support this ministry or I would support that ministry or if this happened or if that happened, then I would uh, provide that for the ministry. And maybe that's one reason none of you are ever going to get a dime off of the lottery is because, you know, God, God knows these ministries need to trust in him and not in the lottery. So God's in control. He is omniscient. He knows all of the all of the details. And that's part of his, the second aspect of his character, and that is his omniscience. He knows all of the knowable. And there are examples in Scripture, a number of places, where God makes statements that indicate that he knows what would happen under if if people had made a different decision. Uh, Jesus makes this statement about Capernaum and Bethsaida, that if everything that had been, all the miracles that had been performed in Capernaum and Bethsaida had been performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, then Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So he knows what would have or could have or should have happened under different circumstances. And so that that brings a tremendous level of complexity to the knowledge of God. And it's interesting because there are a lot of folks, especially those of a more rigid Calvinistic perspective who completely reject that as Arminian. And it's the most convoluted logic I've ever heard, that God has to be able to know all of the knowable. Otherwise, if he just knows what he, what he determines, and so everything that happens is what he determines, then the result of that is you have a God who isn't as great as a God who knows all of the knowable. And then the last aspect to emphasize in this is God's integrity, is that he is absolute love. He wants to do the best for his creatures, and it has to be done in in accord with his perfect righteousness, which is the standard of his character, his absolute virtue, and his justice, which is the application of that righteousness to his creatures. And all of those attributes work together in perfect harmony toward the human race. And so we have to learn to trust God even in the midst of circumstances that we don't see how we'll ever get out from under them. And sometimes we don't ever get out from under them. Sometimes we're in circumstances and situations perhaps of the making of other people. Sometimes we suffer in uh, association with others because of decisions they make. I've been reading through Jeremiah lately in my chronological Bible reading plan. And here is a man of God, a prophet like Isaiah, called by God to a ministry where he's going to proclaim the truth day in and day out and be attacked, be rejected. Nobody's going to listen to him. He's going to be uh, assaulted. He's going to be uh, thrown down in, in a pit. Uh, All of these things happen, and he never gets away from it. He never had a comfortable, uh, relaxed ministry where people would come and thank him for what he was teaching them. He never had that kind of opportunity. And when it was the focal point of his ministry was over, which was warning the people about the 
uh, coming of the of the Babylonians and God's judgment on them and that they would be taken out of the land. When all of that was over and the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, he continued to be rejected by the people. You read of him uh, being approached by some of the leaders and saying, oh, we made such terrible mistakes. We'll do what, tell us what God wants us to do, and we will do it. It doesn't matter what it is. We have learned our lesson. We'll do exactly what God wants us to do. And then Jeremiah says, well, this is what God wants you to do. And they would say, not, not a chance. We're not going to do it. Now, that's, that's a wonderful ministry that's going to make your, your, your heart happy every day. And so he, his circumstances don't change, but he had that stability and, and tranquility. There were times when he complained. And one of the passages I learned early on in my ministry when I was dealing with a congregation that had a, a lot of problems and that they were, they were about, to, and they were <clears throat> negative and they were rejecting most of what they were being taught. And I was reading Jeremiah and Jeremiah is complaining to God about what, the fact that the people aren't listening to him, and that resonated with me at the time. And God's answer was, was a question. He said, if you can't walk with a footman, how are you going to run with the chariots? You know, if you can't handle the small stuff in a small town, how are you going to handle the big stuff when I move you to Jerusalem and you really come under attack? And that, that God works in those circumstances to teach us and to train us and to mature us. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation, the word there indicates a test, a situation that tests us, and the temptation is to try to solve it without depending upon God. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man, but God is faithful. That's the bottom line. Are we going to trust God and to be faithful and true to who he is and take care of us. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. A lot of people misunderstand that. I've heard people say, well, God must think you're really mature because look at the suffering you're going through. The ability there is what comes from the Scripture and from the Holy Spirit. Every one of us has that asset. From the instant you're saved, you have God the Holy Spirit and you have the Word of God. And so any testing you have is you're capable of handling through the Word of God and the Spirit of God from the moment you were regenerated. So you can be in incredibly difficult circumstances right away, but you trust God and he can handle it. And he will, with the test, make the way of escape. That's the way of escape is to be protected under the everlasting arms. That's where we escape. We don't escape by avoiding the difficulty. We escape by fleeing to God and hiding in the cleft of the rock, as the hymn says, under the everlasting arms so that we are protected by God and the storm doesn't go away. But we're protected by God because that's where we are. And then the last point on this is that the doctrine of God's providence means that we can relax in the midst of our adversity because we know that God is in control. He hasn't been taken by surprise. He has provided for this situation from eternity past. He's instructed us. He's taught us. He's provided for us. And so there's no situation that is too great for the omnipotence of God 
There's no situation that's a surprise to the omniscience of God, and there's no situation that's outside the control of the sovereignty of God. So we can just relax and trust God and enjoy the ride. Now let's start with Psalm 60. That gives us background. Psalm 60, Psalm 60 has 12 verses plus the superscript. And the superscript reads like this. To the chief musician, so these, all the psalms were written to be sung. These were the hymns that were sung in the temple at different times of the year, at different circumstances, different situations. So they give us a standard in terms of the lyrics for excellent poetry, that the lyrics of what we sing should be excellent. They should be sophisticated. Now, that doesn't, I use a word like sophisticated. People don't know what sophisticated is. It means that, they ha, that, that they're, they're solid in terms of their doctrinal content. It terms that there's a rhythm to the words. It means that they've been thought out. It has been organized and structured. It's taken time to think through. Just as you read uh, Shakespeare, you read, uh, uh, maybe you uh, read the lyrics of Handel. These were written by men who thought about what they were writing. And they had depth, spiritual depth in their souls. They had a relationship with God that was not superficial. Superficial people produce superficial lyrics. Superficial people produce superficial music. And you have to take time to truly understand uh, and learn about music and to learn about art and to learn about uh, writing and to learn about poetry to be able to produce that which is sophisticated. That doesn't mean it's complex. Some people hear sophisticated and they think, oh, you're talking about something like opera. Well, opera was written for the common people. If you study the history of opera, opera wasn't written for for the elites in society. Operas were written to, as entertainment for the common people. But the reason they, they, the ones that gained popularity, gained popularity because they were sophisticated in the way they handled these great themes of life. And, and they handled those things. And so when you have superficial Christians, you produce nothing more than superficial products and superficial hymns and choruses. And that's what we have today. So it's written to the chief musician, and then it says it's set to a tune. We don't know what the tune was. Lily of the Testimony. So the words are designed to fit a certain melody line, okay? That, that's part of the sophistication is as you write, as writers write words, the lyrics to music, it will fit, easily fit, and the music is a frame for the words, uh, and then we're told that it's a miktam. There's only a few psalms that are described as a miktam. We're not exactly sure what that means. It probably has to do with a type of structure. And then it says it is for teaching, it's for instruction. So this is a hymn, a psalm that is written but it teaches. And all music teaches. That's one reason that I take a lot of care to select the music that we sing is because there's so much music that is out there today, and not just today, but you can go back in the history of the church all the way back to the second century, and there's more garbage than there is good stuff. 
And when it's bad theology, you don't want people learning their theology from the lyrics. And uh, I was telling the story, I think it was Sunday morning, about a man who's in a contemporary worship group and somebody else in that group apostatized from the faith. And this uh, this man mentioned uh, and, and wrote something, and it was quite good, talked about how, uh, sadly, too many people today are learning their theology from the superficial lyrics. That's been true for almost 2,000 years. I'm sure it was true in the Old Testament, too that people learn a lot of their theology from what they sing in church. And if you're not singing good, solid hymns in church where the words are solid and doctrinally accurate, then people are going to get ideas that are not not biblically accurate. So it's designed for teaching, and then it tells us that this is, uh, uh, occurred at the time when he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So it locates its, its historical context in what is described in 2 Samuel 8 and 2 Samuel 10, but it doesn't directly fit anything that we're told in either of those two chapters. 2 Samuel 8 talks about the, his, David's battles with the Philistines, with the Moabites, with uh, Hadadezer and the Arameans up in Syria, and then the Edomites. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, we get more detail, uh, the battles with the Ammonites in chapter 10, 6 through 14, and then uh, with Hadadezer and the Arameans in 16 through 19. So these, uh, this fits what the superscript says at the beginning of Psalm 60. Now here's a map to remind you of where these places are located. In between these circles is the area of Israel that they controlled under under Saul, and then it expanded some more under David. And David, as we studied in our uh, tactics and strategy class last week, first took out the Philistines so that his back would be protected, and then he came down and he attacked the Edomites and then the Moabites and then the Ammonites and then the Ammonites went into an alliance with the Arameans and the Arameans sent an army down and they set up an ambush and Joab just almost got completely defeated but God gave them the victory and then they escaped and got away from there and went back to Jerusalem only to hear that Zobah was bringing down all of his armies from, and just off the uh, map here is the Euphrates River, and the Euphrates River is uh, one of two major rivers that flows through Mesopotamia. Um, We know what a, a hippopotamus is, okay? That is a river horse. So Mesopotamia is... I forget, potamos, something like that, is a Greek word for a horse. I mean, for a river, excuse me, for a river. And so Mesa is the middle, and so it's between the two rivers. So it's, uh, uh, we'll see, it's Aram Naharaim in the Hebrew, which is Aram of the two rivers. Well, that describes, uh, that describes Mesopotamia. So this, this is the area that we're talking about, and specifically, Psalm 60 seems to be focusing on getting victory 
over the Edomites who mostly lived in the area south of the Dead Sea and southeast of the Dead Sea. So I thought I would just put this up here for some comparison to some other translations. The top verse is how it is described in the New King James Version. And the New American Standard, it's for the choir director according to Shushan Eduth. See, they didn't translate it, they just transliterated it, whereas the New King James translated it as Lily of the Testimony. Uh, Miktam of David to teach. When he struggled with Aram Naharaim, see, they just transliterated it again rather than translating it as Mesopotamia. And with Aram Zobah, which is Syria of Zobah. And Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Then he, the last one is goes off of the uh, screen, but it's uh, similar. It's from the NET Bible translation for the uh, choir director, according to Shushan Aduth, a miktam of David to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah and Joab returned and smote 12,000 Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, this word to teach is the Hebrew word lamad. One form of lamad means to teach or to instruct. Now, remember, Hebrew was just written without consonants, I mean, without vowels, so you had consonants L-M-D. If you stick a T in front of it, it, it is going to make it a noun, and it becomes Talmud. Okay, Talmud comes from the root verb lamad, which means to teach. It's in the PL stem, which is intensifies it, so it's the meaning of uh, instruction. So it's designed for instruction, and that's the purpose for this particular psalm. Now we can divide the psalm into three basic sections. It's not a the message of the psalm isn't difficult. There's a couple of verses that are that are crazy difficult. And I'll get to explain that briefly. I was had typical insomnia about 1.30 in the morning and was awake from 1.30 to 3.30, so I thought, well, I would sit down and just read over the lesson. And I read about five commentaries on this textual problem, and about half of them, or it was more than that, it was about eight. Four agreed one way, four agreed the other way, and everybody said, this is extremely difficult. We really don't know what we're talking about. Now, these are from you know, world-class scholars, so <clears throat> it's not always a matter of just knowing the Hebrew or the Greek. Sometimes that just creates more problems. So the first part of the psalm is the first five verses. Having experienced a crisis of national defeat, the psalmist recognizes the problem is spiritual and addresses God as the ultimate solution to the problem. Now, th that communicates to every single one of us because we hit crises in life. Now, there are physical dimensions to crises in life. If you have a financial crisis, well, there are certain things you have to do in terms of solving things, in terms of your bank account, in terms of paying bills. That's the physical side, but ultimately, every issue has a spiritual dimension, and it's trusting God to provide, provide the resources. So David recognizes this. They've suffered this incredible military defeat that has caused the nation to question if God really has their back. 
And I don't know about you, but I don't think you've lived very long as a Christian if you don't hit some wall or some situation or crisis in your life where you don't say, God, where are you? Are you really alert, awake? Are you off worrying about what's going on in China right now? And and you just wonder what's happening. Well, that's where Israel was at this time. They had had tremendous victories with David, but now all of a sudden they, they suffered apparently a, a significant military defeat. And so they're having to self-evaluate and, and uh, evaluate their spiritual life and to, to determine what's going on here. So the first five verses expresses the circumstances for, for the problem and, and the lament. Then in the next four, uh, three verses, six, seven, and eight, God speaks to them, and he is reminding them of his past promises to give them the land. But he also reminds them... Uh, that he will bring judgment eventually on all of Israel's enemies. So this is the promise that they're wrapping their, their, their spiritual mind around, is that God has made these promises from the time of Abraham forward. And with those promises, there were warnings of judgment if they were disobedience, as well as promises of blessing uh, if, they were obe- if, if Israel was obedient, but that God eventually would deal with their enemies. And then the last part is prayer, and that has great application for us. The psalmist prays for victory over Israel's enemies with confidence that God's the one who's going to give them the victory. God's the only one who can help. And so the psalm begins in the first verse addressing God. Oh, God, and notice he doesn't say Yahweh, He's addressing God as as Elohim. Oh, God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore us again. There's certain ways I could probably translate that in, in, in the vernacular that everybody here would get, but I'm going to avoid that. You, you, you've abandoned us. You've deserted us. That's how it really begins here. But I want you to notice where it goes. This is one of those psalms I tell you about all the time that starts off with direct honesty from the writer of the psalms toward God. He's not trying to blow smoke at God and and talk all these niceties about God. There's an undertone of, uh, uh, of confusion. There's an undertone of perhaps uh, some anger some some uncertainty. Uh, he doesn't understand why this has happened. Now, I want you to see the transition that comes at the end of the psalm. In verse 11, you have the, the basic petition, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Now, that's a good verse to memorize and a good verse to use in prayer when you're calling upon God to help you in any trouble, whatever it is, it may be financial trouble, it may be uh, health problems, it may be marital problems, maybe other family problems, uh, there, it may be problems at work, that the ultimate, solution is, the ultimate solution is always God. There may be some intermediate solutions, but the ultimate solution is a spiritual solution, and it's always God. We're studying about uh, the sufficiency of Scripture on Thursday night in our study in in Second Peter, 
And it's the sufficiency of God here. He is the one who helps us. Man can't do it. Human viewpoint is useless. It may be a Band-Aid on a problem for a while. And for a while, maybe 5, 10, 15 years, but then it's going to crash. Human viewpoint is only a temporary solution, and it's a fake solution. God is the only one who can deliver us and help us in times of trouble. Psalm 60, verse 12 concludes, through God we will do valiantly. And the, the Hebrew word there is a word for, for great strength. It's a word that is used to describe the courage uh, and the victory of a, of a mighty warrior. And so God, through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. And we get this great image that's used again and again in Scripture of God just walking through a, a battlefield and slaughtering the enemy. And so he is the one who completely squashes uh, our enemies and our problems. So we go back to the first verse, and there's three lines here, three different verbs used to express this reality that God didn't back them in a battle. God wasn't there. They did, God did not show up, and they were soundly defeated. Uh, the, first, the first verb is translated as cast off, and it has that idea of being spurned. It's a very harsh term, you being totally rejected. Um, this is a term that is emphasizing the fact that God seems to have abandoned them, but not in the sense that God has completely deserted them as he would unbelievers. But this is talking about the fact that God has is, is not there to support them, and probably because there is some... Uh, some sin in the life that is uh, that needs to be dealt with in the life of Israel. Uh, this word that is translated uh, cast off or spurned or rejected is the Hebrew word zanach, and it is used again down in verse 10, which is what I have at the bottom of the slide. Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our army. So he repeats his complaint toward God down in verse, down in verse 10, but then he immediately shifts to his plea to God in verse 11 to give us help from our, uh, from our trouble. Whenever you run into this kind of uh, usage, it always emphasizes some sort of divine divine discipline when God is involved. The same thing is true of the second word, parats, which means to break through. And it's given a very strong visual in Isaiah 5.5 when God is talking about uh, Israel using the imagery of a vineyard that is surrounded by a wall. And God says the wall is going to be broken down and trampled down. It removes protection. So that's the idea here. It's a breaking something down is to remove uh, any any protection. And when God is the subject of parats in the scripture, then it emphasizes his punishment uh, of Israel for something that has gone on. So the text doesn't tell us about any of those things. We just have these hints in in the background. So God has spurned the people. 
which is not the same as completely abandoning them and deserting them. He's not moving away from them. He is providing for them, but he's, he's, going, to, um, he's going to punish them as a result of whatever the sin is that, that caused cause this. We look at Psalm 43.2, uh, uses the same kind of language by David. For God, you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? See, this is talking about broken fellowship, not a, a complete and total uh, uh, abandonment. And then the last line is enough. You have been displeased. God is really angry. That's what that is saying. You are very angry with us. The word enough uh, is really is based on the, the Hebrew word for nose or nostril. And it goes back to a metaphor for describing people who are angry, their, their nose turns red. You know, somebody gets really upset and their face turns red. That's the idea. The Hebrews, that's what they meant when they said you're, you're angry. They didn't have a word for angry for that emotion. They had a word that was a physical attribute. So we call that an anthropomorphism, where you take an aspect of a human body and you attribute it to God. He doesn't actually possess an arm or an eye or a leg, but we use that as a figure of speech so that we can understand the plan and purpose of God. So this is, in, first of all, this is an anthropomorphism that converts to an anthropopathism. An anthropopathism is to talk about an emo- a human emotion that God doesn't actually possess in order to communicate something about his plans or purposes. I remember some years ago reading an article about the question, does God have emotion? And I read the article, and I respected the guy and was friends with the guy who wrote the article, and I came back and I said, that you're an Old Testament major. How in the world did you ignore the fact that all these terms for God's anger, which you talk about, are all anthropomorphisms? He hadn't even caught that. They're, they're all anthropomorphisms. This is very difficult, and that's why I'm going back to this classic way of talking about emotion. I've said this four or five times now from the pulpit, that emotion is a recent term. It isn't really coined until you get into the 1700s. Prior to that, they talked about uh, the passions, the bodily passions. Anger would be a bodily passion. And they talked about the intellectual appetites uh, so that you have things that we might call today positive emotions, but we shouldn't use that term because it muddies the water. There's no comparable word to emotion anywhere in the Bible. You have words that talk about about volition. You have words that talk about specific emotional sins, but you don't have a word that translates as emotion. And so you have to talk about this in very precise ways. So... This is talking about the fact that, that God is executing his justice. When God, when you hear, see those phrases, the wrath of God, we use the same thing. You go into a courtroom, and you have done something criminal, and you get the maximum penalty. We have an idiom for that, that the judge threw the book at you. 
Well, that pictures a judge who's out of control and angry, but he's not. He's not going to last on the bench if he got personally, emotionally angry all the time. But it is a figure of speech to say that we have received the fullest judgment according to the fullest extent of the law. That's what's in the book, is the book of the law. And so that's what we have here. When we talk about the wrath of God, it is talking about the fullness of God's judicial punishment for for something. And then we have an interesting description here. It's translated as you have made the earth tremble, but it's the word Eretz. Eretz is a Hebrew word that refers to the land. Today, if you are in Israel, you talk about Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. So this is Eretz here. This isn't talking about the earth in terms of the world. It's talking about the land of Israel. They've had this military defeat, and it's been so significant that he hyperbolically talks about how the land itself vibrated like an earthquake, and it's shaking and it's breaking in pieces because of the fear that we're going to be destroyed. So that's the idea in verse verse 2, and then in verse 3, you have shown your people hard things, and you have made us drink the wine of confusion. That's the King, New King James, and it actually means reeling. We're, we're just left to stumble about. We have lost our bearings because of the judgment that has come. Now, this idea of drinking wine and wine, and wine is taken out of a cup, so you drink the dregs of the cup. That's a metaphor throughout the scripture for God's judgment. He treads the wine presses. That is a picture of judgment. You tread the wine. What colors the grape juice? It's red like blood. That is language and imagery talking about uh, military defeat, loss of life. And it specifically speaks of judgment. For example, Matthew 20 uh, 22, we have the mother of James and, and um, uh, John wanting to know if they can sit at the right hand of the Lord when he comes in his kingdom. And he says, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? See, drinking the cup, that's judgment. The judgment on, of sin that was going to come to the Lord when he went to the cross. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. he uses the same imagery in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says to the Father, let this cup, this judgment, pass from me. And Revelation 14.10 talks about drinking the wine of the wrath of God. Again, drinking the wine of the cup, drawing the wrath of God, speaks of divine judgment that's poured out into the cup of his indignation. And in Revelation 16.19 uh, great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. That describes judgment. You see the same thing in the Old Testament, Isaiah fifty-one seventeen. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. It's talking about his judgment. It's talking about God bringing discipline on Israel, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Uh, verse 22 of Isaiah 51, Thus says your Lord, the Lord, and your God, who pleads the cause of his people, 
See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. He's stopping the, the discipline. So this is, this is what is being pictured here when we get down to verse, verse 3. So these first three verses all talk about that for some reason Israel has come under divine judgment and they've lost this battle and it's been a significant defeat. And so then David says, or David said, prays, you who have shown your people hard, uh, excuse me, verse 4, you have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth, Selah. Now, who knows what that verse is saying? The first part is pretty clear. You have given a banner. The word there is nous, and there's a couple of uh, paranomasias or word plays in the Hebrew here. I'm not going to get into that. It doesn't, uh, doesn't help us a whole lot. You have given a banner to those who fear you. Now, this idea of a banner goes back to Exodus 17:15. After the victory over the Amalekites, Moses built an altar and ca- called its name, The Lord is My Banner. So Yahweh is the one around whom we converge in the middle of a battle because he's the one who's going to protect us, okay? Then you get to Numbers 21, 8 and 9. The same word is used, but it's translated pole here. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is the episode of the fiery serpents when people are getting bitten by these vipers and it's going to be fatal unless they follow God's solution. And so God's solution is that Moses is to build a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole, and if people looked at it, they would be instantly healed from the bite. So here, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole as a banner. And so the purpose is this is how you'd be saved. So this idea of looking at a banner, it has something to do with deliverance and salvation and that message that you converge on the banner and you will be saved. So you've given a banner to those who fear you, that is, believers, and that it may be displayed because of the truth. Now, the verb that comes up next is a verb form of banner, that it may be displayed, and so that uh, that relates the second line to back to the banner, and that's part of the wordplay that's going on here. But that last line, because of the truth, the Hebrew word is, remember, no vowels, so it's Q-S-H-T, kof, shin, tov. Now, some manuscripts have koshet, which is another word for truth. Others have keshet which has to do with the bow, like you shoot an arrow with. The English translations, both, both the Tanakh that I consult, the what, 1917 Jewish Publication Society Tanakh, and the 1985 Tanakh, both have truth. But most about half the English translations have truth, half the English translations have, have bow. And so the idea is that in the bow option that the banner would show the way of escape before the bow. They're being, being attacked. 
The other view that this is the truth is that it is the banner that is displaying the truth of the Lord. And so by rallying around the Lord, then there will be victory. So I hate saying it could be A, it could be B, but it's unclear what the original word in the Hebrew is there as to which way it goes. But the bottom line is God is the one who is providing the victory for those who fear him. And then you get to verse 5, that your beloved may be delivered. This is the request, save with your right hand and hear me. Now, this word beloved is interesting. It is the based on the Hebrew root word, yadid. And David and yadid are cognates. David is the name for David. So there's sort of a wordplay there. Another interesting historical fact is that one of the great British officers who was a early Zionist was Ord Wingate. Ord Wingate was originally reared in the home of uh, Plymouth Brethren parents and taught well and taught a love for the Jewish people. He, he was a, a stationed in Israel in the time of the Arab revolt in the late 30s where he taught them how to be night fighters. He taught Moshe Diane all of his understanding of night tactics, all based on uh, Wingate's understanding of what Gideon did against the Midianites and night fighting against the Midianites in Judges uh, chapter 6 and 7. He became greatly loved by the leadership in Israel. He, he led a group of... Uh, of commandos. He was a general in India for the British Army during World War II. He was shot down over Burma. Uh, it was an American plane. Most of those in the plane, except for Wingate, were American. So when they discovered the crash site after the war, they just scooped up all the remains and buried them in a mass grave at Arlington National Seminary, which irritated the Brits because but they couldn't really decide who was who from what was left left over. But the Israelis gave him a nickname. They called him Hayadid. The, and they in modern Hebrew they translate that as the friend. But that is that was a great honor for them. And for many years, I just found out they don't do it anymore. For many years, the Israeli ambassador in Washington, D.C. would have a ceremony on the anniversary of Wingate's death, and they would go out to his grave and put, put flowers on the grave. So this is used in Isaiah 5.1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. So my well-beloved has a vineyard on a fruitful hill. So here it's, it's related to, to God. So it relates to God, it relates to those whom God loves. And so the request in the psalm is that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand. We've seen that in our study in Psalm 89, the right hand is the hand of great power. Save with your omnipotence and hear me respond to my prayer. So in Psalm 60, verse 6 and 7, 8 and 9, really talks about the geography Six and seven, God has spoken. This is the promise. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Now, what this is talking about is God marking out the boundaries for the inheritance, the property that would belong to each of the, each of the tribes. So here is Sukkoth, and um, Shechem 
is here's Shiloh. Shechem is located right about here. It's not mentioned, uh, located on the map. It's located right about here. And, and so you have Shechem in the Cisjordan. You have Sukkot in the Transjordan. And basically what God is saying is, I'm the one who divided out the territories for the different tribes in, in the land. I'm in control. Gilead is mine. Gilead is the Transjordan over here. Here you have Jabesh Gilead. Ramoth Gilead. So Gilead or Gilead is the area of the Transjordan. And he says, Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Now Manasseh had uh, a tribe on the, uh, half tribe on the, in the Transjordan and had half tribe on the Cisjordan. So here's West Manasseh and the Cisjordan. And then this brown area up here was Manasseh, the other half half of the tribe over there. So what he is saying is, all of this land is mine, and I've divided it up, and I'm 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 controlling it. Even though you lost the battle, you haven't lost the land. And then he says, Moab is my wash pot. That's where you wash your feet and get all the dirt and your dust off. So it's an extremely unclean thing. It's it's just a servile thing is to be called a wash pot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. What do you do? You have dirty feet. You've been mucking about in the mud. You sit down, you take your shoes off, and you throw them somewhere. So he's throwing it against Edom, and then he's washing his feet. That Basically, it's an idiom that, that I'm just walking all over. Uh, I'm walking all over Moab and Edom, and they are nothing to me but that which is dirty and filthy and uh, not not significant. And then Philistia, shout in Trump, triumph because of me. So Moab, Edom, and Philistia are mentioned here. They're mentioned in Second Samuel 8 Second Samuel 10. And then remember, God is still speaking. Moab is my wash pot. Edom, I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. Verse 9, who will bring me to the strong city? They don't have it uppercased here, but it's still a first-person singular pronoun, and it doesn't change. So what God is asking here is who's going to go out and lead the troops now so we can defeat the enemy? Who's going to lead the troops in obedience to me? That is the basic question. And then it shifts Today, David, or the psalmist speaking, says, Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies. How are you asking us to lead when you're the one who seems to have cast us off? And then he says, Give us help, Lord. Here's that example, that great word, Ezer. Ezer Ezer is used to describe the helper, the woman who is designed to be the helper of, for the man, and here's a great example. Like I mentioned the, the, a couple of weeks ago, is that this wife is a helper is not a a a place in our society that has value. But since God is the one who's designated the primary helper in Scripture, and the way He helps is by delivering Israel or delivering believers, it elevates the role of the wife in the family to be the one who aids and helps and makes the family successful. And so that's the picture and the comparison you have here in verse 11, praying to God, give us help, easer from the trouble, for the help of man is useless. You can't rely on human viewpoint. 
Through God we will do valiantly. We will have a great victory, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Not us, not our skill, but it's God. So this takes us through step one, claiming a promise. Step two, thinking through the doctrinal rationale, who God is and what he has promised and the basis of that promise to us as Israel. And then appropriating the doctrinal conclusions that God is going to give us a fantastic victory because we're not going to rely on ourselves. We're going to rely on God. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through this psalm, to be encouraged and strengthened with the focal point here that you are the one who are our helper. You're the one who delivers us. And when we trust in you and you alone, then we will have tremendous uh, victory as you are the one who will uh, provide that protection for us and sustain us uh, no matter what crisis may be going on around us, no matter what the difficulties may be. You will provide for us and you will sustain us. Father, we pray that we would come to understand how that these principles apply in our, our own lives. In Christ's name, amen.